From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Michael Bungay-Stanier is the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, which is a company known for creating and teaching 10-minute coaching bits so that busy managers can build stronger teams, get better results. He's the author of a wonderful book. It's called The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. He's also written Do More Great Work, Stop the Busy Work, Start the Work That Matters. Uh, Michael was the first Canadian Coach of the Year, so he's got an impressive background. But he doesn't take himself too seriously. Here's what he says about himself. He left Australia 25 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. Pretty serious. But he claims that his only significant achievement there was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto, having spent some time in London and Boston as well. Balancing out these these moments of success, according to Michael, he was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, which we do discuss in this episode. He was sued by one of his law school lecturers for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Mills and Boone short story called The Male Delivery, M-A-L-E. You'll have to check that one out. But now, without further ado, I want you to listen and learn as Michael and I talk about his seven magical coaching questions and how you can use them in helping people around you at work and in all parts of your life. Michael Bungay-Stanya, welcome to Work and Life. Stu, it's so nice to be here. I've been such a fan of your work for so long. You've been on my podcast, which was awesome, but I'm so excited to be here, and thanks for the nice introduction. Oh, well, thank and you. For, and pronouncing my name right. There's like, there's about a 3 3% chance that people get my name right, and you nailed it, so that's perfect. Oh, wow. Well, so we're off to a good start. All right. Well, so, Michael, um, listeners are going to be really interested to learn about your, your approach to coaching and how they can use it in, in their lives. Our society... Uh, you know, we are conditioned when we hear the, people's problems just to give them answers, right? To give them right. advice. But you're you're focusing on a different approach, one in which, uh, well, uh, has a different kind of mindset. Why? Tell us what that is and why it's important. You know, the 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 very simple to describe, but actually harder than you'd think to do behavior that I think really benefits everybody in the conversation is. Can you slow down the rush to give advice and move to action? And can you stay curious just a little bit longer? Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things I'm saying to you right from the top is it's, it's not to say never give advice because that would be ludicrous. I mean, there's times when advice is exactly the thing that needs to be offered. You know, when somebody comes up to you and goes, 
yeah, where, where do I find the file folder? You don't go, so, you know, how are you feeling about the file folder? You tell them where the file folder is. But as, as people, we are wired to leap in, jump in, and offer ideas, solutions, and action, in part because we've had a lifetime of being encouraged to be the person who has the answer. Mm. You know, you get the A at school, you get the A at university, you try and be the subject matter expert in your work, all of that. And at a certain point when the, the knowledge runs out and curiosity can actually play a more powerful role. And that's, that's the simple thing I'm advocating. Look, there's a place for advice, but can we just stay curious a little bit longer and slow down the rush to action and advice giving? You know, l- listening really seems to be in such a short supply these days in, yeah. in the national and international discourse Right. Uh, that seems uh, so fractious and so uh, contentious. Uh, so there, there's increasing demand for various approaches to living and interacting with other people at work and in other parts of life that are uh, all about what you are advocating for, compassion, right. curiosity about the other, really trying to grasp their point of view uh, before leaping to judgment. Um, what are you seeing in, in the world as as it relates to the demand or the interest in, in the work that you are bringing to the world? Well, I mean, we're having great demand at the moment. I mean, the book is this actually surprisingly, amazingly successful book for us at the moment. It's been out about a year and a half, and it's sold almost 300,000 copies so far. So Yikes. If, you go, if you go on that metric alone, there's obviously some demand for that. The challenge is, and it's ironic, okay, like you're going to say, let me give you some advice, and that's not to give as much advice. So Hmm. it's one thing to A paradox? Yeah, exactly. It's one thing to know the theory of, I I want to stay curious. Mm -hmm. What's hard for people is to actually do that, because we have deep habits, we have deep patterns of behavior, where we're kind of triggered to leap in and be that person with the solution and with Mm -hmm. the answer. So, in fact, in the book, one of the things we start with, the first chapter, is actually a chapter about habits. Now, I'm, no, I'm not an original researcher on habits, but I certainly feel like I stand on the shoulder of some giants like Charles Duhigg, who wrote The Power of Habit, and B.J. Fogg, who wrote his, a great website called tinyhabits.com, and Leo Babauta and others. And just going, look, if you start to understand habits, you start to understand that they're the building blocks of behavior change. Mm -hmm. And if you buy into this conversation that we're having, that actually it's a powerful human act to stay curious a little bit longer, because I love the way you put it, Stu, which is this isn't just about becoming a more efficient, effective manager, although it will help with that. This is actually about how do you slow down enough to start seeing the other person across the table from you, you know, literally or metaphorically, as a fellow human being. Um, you know, I don't know if you know, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you do, the, 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 the writer Martin Buber. And I don't know his work particularly well, but he has a distinction that I love, and it's the difference between I-it and I-thou. It's two mm-hmm. ways of describing a relationship. I-it is when it's you and a kind of objectified other person or other thing. Mm-hmm. And I thou is actually when you're able to see them as another fully present human being. Yes, and, an important and work thou, in the course, whole uh, the history of existential philosophy and thought. 
Exactly. And it, it really feels that part of what's wonderful about this show is it is about a championing of the behaviors and the ways of thinking that allow us to, as best we can, for as long as we can, move from that I-it relationship, which is kind of where we spend a lot of time. And I think I'm going to fix you with my advice is an I-it mm. move mm. to an I-thou preach, which is around let me create the space where I can stay present and curious and supportive and, and for you in the journey you're on. So why is it, do you think, that we are so um, conditioned to be um, advice-giving problem solvers rather than yeah. uh, curious, caring, uh, and uh, you know, engaging in inquiry? Yeah, I think there's two answers to that, Stu. And I think there's, a, there's a, a kind of a superficial level or a kind of more obvious answer um, and then there's a deeper, more subtle answer to it. So the superficial answer, or at least the, the kind of the obvious one, is that you know we're trained to be the person with the answer. You know we're encouraged, we're we're rewarded, we're supported. We've been told all our lives having the answer is a good thing to do. You know school, high school, university, they're all rewarded for being the smart person with the answer. So right. it's uh, it is it is ubiquitous, strong built into our our wiring in terms of how we've been educated and, and trained. So people come to you or they come to your book trying to change, yes? That's right. Um, and they, they, often there's, some, there's a degree of crisis, that may be an overstatement, but it, let's frame that in the broader sense, which has brought them to the need for changing this behavior mm-hmm. because they finally go... I have no more capacity to give advice. And, you know, in my working life, and we spend, you know, as my company works mostly in organizational life, you know, we run into managers that are in these three vicious circles there. They have a team that's become over-dependent on them because Mm -hmm. the team's kind of trained them to go, you tell me the answer, and the more you tell me the answer, the more I'll come to you for the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, They're overwhelmed because there's, you know, there's data, there's information, there's meetings, there's obligations coming out to them in all different directions. And sometimes there's also what Simon Sinek would call that kind of loss of the why, the disconnect from Mm -hmm. purpose. Mm -hmm. So they just hit that piece going, look, I am doing my best and I'm exhausted and I'm frustrated. This way of working isn't working as well as I'd wanted. So how do you help people, Michael? What's, what's the, where where do they start? And what what do you take them through? Yeah, so part of the start, and again, we work mostly with organizational folks and organizations, so managers and leaders, but honestly, we we know that these tools apply to everybody. You know, this isn't about training people to be coaches, really. It's about mm-hmm. how do you be a person that's more coach-like? And remember that, mm-hmm. how do I stay curious a little bit longer? How do I rush to action and advice just a little bit more slowly? Mm-hmm. And, and, we, and we go, so what's getting in the way? You know, and some people go, ah, oh, I don't have time for this. You know, it's like co- coaching takes too long. I, you know, mm-hmm. you have to lie down on a couch and have an hour long conversation. Who has time for that? And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, nobody does really. Well, so for us, some we're people like, do. Uh, some people do. <laughs> but it's harder like, these days. Yeah, but it is harder and it's not something you can do on an everyday basis. Mm. So for us, it's like, if you can't have this conversation in 10 minutes or less, you're, you're right. You probably can't be more coach-like in the work. But you, the good news is these conversations can be really fast. Mm-hmm. And the second framing for a lot of people is to say, look, 
you don't act, this is not turning you into a coach. Because it turns out lots of people don't want to be a coach. Mm-hmm. They just want to be better at their life. You know, the theme mm-hmm. of this whole conversation. I want to have a better life. I want to integrate. I want to connect. I want to be present. I want to find balance. I want to manage overwhelm. And it's about, look, this is about helping you get there. Because one of the things that we say is, look, if actually if you master some of these skills, you end up working less hard but having more impact. All right, so staying curious a little bit longer, slowing down your rush to action. What is it? Play that out in more specific terms. In terms, like you've yeah. got these seven lovely questions that 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 can help uh, yeah. bring bring these ideas, these principles to life. Uh, perhaps you can share those with us now. Sure, let me do that, and let me start with the first and the last one. Okay, it's a nice way of kind of framing the conversation. We call these the bookend questions. Because if, if you buy into this whole idea of, look, if this is going to work, I need to be able to do it quickly, mm-hmm. 10 minutes or less, then you, know, you need to know how to start a conversation more quickly and end it more powerfully. Mm. So the first question is called the kickstart question, because it's such a great way of kickstarting a, a conversation. And it is simply this question, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? Hmm. And here's to you why I think it works so well. The first thing is, it is an open question. It says to that other person, hey, you get to choose where this conversation goes. You get to choose what we talk about. Mm-hmm. So it gives them control and autonomy, all that good stuff. But it also says to them, don't tell me anything. Tell me the thing that you're worried about mm-hmm. or excited about mm-hmm. or waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning about or feeling stuck about. Go somewhere important. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, before you know it, you're into a conversation that has some meaning and some focus and some point to it. Mm -hmm. It kind of accelerates the drop down into a conversation of substance, rather than feeling a bit like, ah, you know, we're doing small talk, we're doing chit chat, I'm trying to listen Mm -hmm. and be present, but when are we going to get to the point? Of this conversation, mm-hmm. what's on your mind will take you deeper more quickly. So when someone says, ah, nothing. Yeah. Well, that, that may be true. <laughs> um, well, and you may go, okay, fair enough. Think of, a, um, think of a 16-year-old. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't have kids of my own, Stu. And so I'm loath to try and tell anybody how to be a successful parent. But I have to say, I've had some people come back and go, I've had these questions work on my teenage child, which mm-hmm. I think is the highest acme of praise, perhaps. Um, <laughs> so if someone uh, says nothing, yeah, what, what's well, your that, advice for how you sort of break through that? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of ways forward on it. One is you go, yeah, sure, that's probably true. But if there was something on your mind, what might it be? Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of cunning way of kind of getting to re-answer the question going, okay, I, that's sure, mm-hmm. but take a guess. If you had to guess what might be on your mind, mm-hmm. what might be there? Yeah, I could see how um, that would open it up. Yeah. Is and, there another and one? There might be some alternatives, which is like, okay, if there's nothing on your mind, wh- what's the most useful place for us to start this conversation? Mm-hmm. And often it's in the context of, you know, you're expecting a conversation with me, or maybe this is our weekly one-to-one conversation, or maybe there's somebody who's shown up and gone, I'm in the kitchen with you, I have a cup of coffee, I'm looking worried or distressed. You, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a conversation ripe to be had. A great way to start is to go, hey, look, I'm curious, what's on your mind? Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you'll get in somewhere powerful. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, it really does, it's, it's so inviting. So what is the other end of the bookend? Yeah. The, the, the ending so, powerfully. And this is particularly powerful, I think, or particularly useful in that organizational setting. Because I think mm-hmm. 
the role of managers and leaders most effective is when they are teachers. They're teaching people, helping them learn. But you've got to realize, and Stu, you and I both learned this the hard way, people don't really learn when you tell them stuff. Because <laughs> oh. in one ear, pretty much goes out the No, the, the cardinal ear, rule in my classroom is the more I speak, the worse things go. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Right. People, people don't even, even learn when they do stuff. I mean, there's a bit more there, but not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. People learn when they have a moment to reflect on what just happened. Mm-hmm. And co- creating that little learning moment as a piece of reflection is actually when the new neural pathways happen, when the aha moments happen. So for me, the, the, the learning question, the final question in the book, the second bookend question, is this question or a variation of it. What was most useful or what was most valuable here for you? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, Stu, in your classroom as they leave, it's like, like before you leave, I want you to write down what was most useful and most valuable about what you learned here today. I, I've been doing this for 30 years. I mean, I do this all the time. This is, yeah. this is a, a natural pathway for, for me, and it's, it's always uh, worked well because you're giving people you know, the authority to yes. determine what it is that mattered to them. And it also yeah. frames it as something you know, positive, like, okay, they've got to dig and find what was Brilliant. indeed useful. It's not like, so what would you think? You're not asking them to evaluate. You're asking them to derive meaning and value. You got it. I mean, you said that much more eloquently than I could ever say it. Oh, no, well, I, didn't, I didn't mean to... to no, to, I loved to, it. it. It was beautifully said. The, the other, what else is nice about it is, I loved your point, and it's often missed that by asking that question, you mm-hmm. remind them that just had a valuable experience, mm-hmm. and they might otherwise miss it. Right. Um, but also, if you then listen to their answer, uh, you know, you go around the room and ask, you know, what was most useful or valuable. What happens for you is you get feedback about what's working. So you get to refine your approach, your you know, your content that you're sharing, or your style of teaching, whatever it might be. Um, and we found that this is just such a powerful way because so often in a conversation, you know, you're on one side of it and you just go, I was legendary in this conversation. Powers of wisdom dropped from my lips. Nuggets of gold fell from the sky. It was amazing. And the other person walks away going, I have no idea what that was about. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this does is just find a moment to extract the value by giving them the autonomy and the authority to do that work and have that 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 learning and it connects to that that lovely throwaway line you had about you know the more i talk the worse it's going one of the three principles we have about being more coach-like and this is be lazy be curious and be often and you're really pointing to that be lazy piece Ooh, tell me more about lazy that sounds good it is it's 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 a little provocative because when you say to most people we want you to be lazy they bristle a bit because they're they're hard working they're ambitious they're keen but what you're pointing to in your statement about when I'm talk- the more I talk, the worse it's going, is you're realizing that if a conversation is going well, the other person is doing the work. Because if they're doing the work, they're doing the learning. They're making the connections. Mm-hmm. They're, they're making the progress. And your job is to hold the space and still do the work. And much of the work you're doing is self-management so you're not leaping in and telling them what to do, mm-hmm. but you're kind of giving them the space and the direction to find their own path and find their own answer. 
Yes, and that, that, of course, lightens your load as a manager, and it also engages more fully the talents and skills and experiences of uh, the people you're trying to uh, trying to motivate and bring you got it. all their talents to bear on the work you're doing together. All right, exactly so, right. So, so that the beginning, the end, we've got yeah. that. So, um, well, let me give you another combination of questions really quickly. Okay. The first is the focus question. And the insight here is most people are working really hard to solve the wrong problems because they get seduced into thinking the first challenge is the actual challenge. It almost never is. Hmm. So the second, this question, the focus question is, what's the real challenge here for you? And Stu, how that's built out really matters. Because you could just ask, what's the challenge here? And actually, that's not a bad question. But it becomes richer as soon as you say, what's the real challenge here? Because mm. now you're saying, hey, there's more than one thing going on. So what's the, you know, figure it out. What's the real challenge? Mm-hmm. And it becomes even more powerful when you add for you mm-hmm. onto the end of it. What's the real challenge here for you? Because then the spotlight turns from the challenge to the person who's struggling with the challenge. Mm-hmm. It becomes more personal, and the learning becomes deeper. I can see now, that. That question becomes all the more powerful when you add what we call the best coaching question in the world. Uh-oh. The best coaching, Hold on. Drum roll. Like, drum roll. Uh, exactly. Drum roll, please. <laughs> confetti. Fireworks going There off. is now confetti falling down oh, from the studio you. roof. Seriously. Um, the best coaching question in the world, three simple words, and what else? And what else? And Steve, because it's huh. so powerful because it goes with the knowledge that the first answer is never their only answer, mm-hmm. and it's rarely their best answer. Mm-hmm. And also, it's a self-management tool, right? This is what's helping you stay curious. So we teach a little script in one of our classes, and, it, and the script goes like this. Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? Okay, what else? is a challenge here for you. And what else is a challenge here for you? And then you lean a little closer and you go, okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? Hmm. And what you find in three minutes is people have a deepened the conversation and it shifts a little bit sideways and they find quite often a quite a revelatory aha moment because they've just taken a little bit more time to actually spend time being curious about what that real challenge might be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're giving them the uh, the uh, freedom to to pursue the the layers below, which are often yeah. uh, the ones that that are driving so much of what's on the surface. That's right. So, and, well, go ahead, finish your thought, please. I was going to say so, and here's what people find when you ask it for the second time. So, what's the real challenge here for you? It's almost always different from the answer they gave the first time you asked that same question. And that's important for two reasons. First of all, it means that if you'd been busy solving that first challenge, you'd be solving the wrong problem. Hmm. And then when you add to that, that you know, in general, people's advice isn't nearly as good as they think it is, now you're basically offering up slightly crappy advice to solve the wrong problem, and you realize that you're really wasting everybody's time. Uh, tell me the balloon incident. <laughs> So, um, yeah, really quickly, my, at high school, my headmaster been headmaster for 30 years. The class, graduating class the year beforehand caused havoc. They'd let sheep into the, the, the main courtyard. They'd written rude words in weed killer that appeared six months later. They filled the locks with glue. It was a disaster. So we were told as the, the final graduating class for this headmaster, you know, 
do anything, anything at all, and, and chaos will reign. Anyway, so I came up with this idea that we would just fill our chapel with helium balloons. So, you know, it's like a very benign little incident, but made a point that, we you know, we're not going to disappear without some sort of statement. Anyway, clearly the school felt this was a less appropriate thing than I did, and I and a few other people got banned from graduating because of that outrageous act. Oh, my gosh. a chaplain with some helium balloons. <laughs> Michael, why do you call it Box of Crayons? You know, it's a, it's a short story. I'll, I'll tell it quickly. I was uh, just arrived in Toronto 2001, left Boston, came up here, knew nobody, and had started my company. So I knew I had to get out there and meet people and talk to people. And uh, I was running a session on branding at my local coach chapter. It's called something like Michael's Three immutable and unarguable laws of branding. And I came up with these three laws of branding and then discovered my company name failed all three of my own laws of branding. <laughs> I was like, well, that's not good. I either have to change my three immutable and unarguable with laws of branding or I have to come up with a better name for my own company. And I went through, I, I had three weeks, so I went through a bunch of names. And then when Box of Crayons came into my head, I just went, that is a great name. Because, Stu, when, let me ask you, when you think of Box of Crayons, what do you think of? Burnt Umber. Exactly. What else do you think of? Uh, uh, creative play. Yeah. Where lots of people go is creative play, diversity, mm. difference, uh fun. I mean, basically, nobody's really had a traumatic incident with a box of crayons. <laughs> so for most people, they get a nice kind of warm feeling about it. Mm -hmm. And also, it's, a, it's distinctive. You know, mm -hmm. in, in our field, it stands out and makes people kind of remember us and we punch above our weight because of the name. Nice. So, well done. You know, it's, it's got all of that. All right. So um, I'm interested in hearing more uh, about the, the questions, the wonderful uh, questions that you have uh, mm. generated. So tell us more. We've got the starting question, yeah. what's on your mind, the yep. closing, what was most useful for you, yep. the most important or powerful question of all, and what else? <laughs> yeah, you're underselling it. It's the best coaching S question in the world, Stu. So what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so what so what else what else exactly so the other question we've already covered is the focus question which is so what's the real challenge here for you mm -hmm. so right. if we went to the fifth question the fifth question is the foundation question it's it's the middle question of the seven and in some ways it's the most powerful it's the most human question that's there and it's like all of them it's simple but sometimes difficult to answer and the question is what do you want because, Stu, if you, if you wanted to kind of philosophize about what we're about at Box of Crayons, it's about helping people build adult-to-adult -adult relationships in their life, at their work and in their life. Um, you know, it's very much in theme for what the work you stand for in this world. And, you know, people can nod their head at that, but it's a fair question to ask, well, what do you even mean when you say adult-to-adult -adult relationships? It's a bit kind of therapy speak, and it is. Um, and the way I talk about it, I'm, somebody gave me this language and I love it, is adult-to-adult -adult relationship is when you can feel that you can ask for what you want, knowing that the answer may be no. Hmm. Now, 
turns out that actually knowing what you want isn't nearly as common as you might think. <laughs> and then having the courage and clarity to ask for what you want is equally rare. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that can be particularly powerful is to ask somebody, what do you want? So often what we do, Stu, is we make assumptions that we know what the other person wants and we start telling them, delivering it to them, giving it to them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, asking that question and then stopping and listening to the answer can be an extremely powerful act. So why don't people do that more often? Or or put another way, um, what do people say to you when you ask them? What do you want? What, what's, a, what's a common answer that you hear? Yeah, well, the most common reaction is what I call the goldfish reaction because their eyes start kind of popping open a little bit and their mouth makes that kind of little guppy you know, sound because mm-hmm. they're like, God, what do I want? And, and then if you want to add the, the most powerful question in the world, and what else? So you go, okay, what do you want? What else do you want? Mm-hmm. What else do you want? Mm-hmm. What do you really want? Then quite quickly you can get somewhere really interesting and really provocative. Hmm. And of course, it, it, it depends on the context of the conversation, what they might say. But one of the things that I talk about in the book is the difference between the wants and the needs. Mm-hmm. And uh, for this, you know, I lean into the work of Marshall Rosenberg, who's most famous for his work in around uh, nonviolent communication. And his sense is that, you know, Whatever the context you're in will give you an idea of what um, what the want is. And it might be anything from, you know, I want a cold glass of water to I want that report to be written in time to I want, uh, I want you to stop doing that thing that you're doing. But underneath the wants are what he points to are kind of, I think there are about nine very basic human needs. And that's a really powerful place to go because if you get clear on what those deeper needs are, you can really show up in that I-thou type of conversation we talked about early. So, mm-hmm. you know, the needs are things like recreation or freedom or subsistence or protection or affection or understanding. And often behind that kind of more superficial level conversation is a quest for a deeper need. Hmm. Well, often people are reluctant to even acknowledge, as you say, what those deeper needs are, let alone reveal right. them. Right. So, so I, I'm, I'm sure you encounter all the time people who are either not aware of what those deeper needs are that they have uh, yeah. or are unwilling to, to disclose them. That's true. Um, and honestly, I think often the question, what do you want, and hearing what they want at that kind of immediate level is often fine. That's often a powerful act in and of itself. Mm -hmm. There's something, though, that if you're thinking to yourself, what are they saying that they want? And if I had to guess, knowing that people have some basic human drivers, what might be the deeper need underneath that? that allows you to listen at a deeper level and understand that other person at a deeper level. Um, they may not be able to say, in fact, most people wouldn't say, well, I, you know, I want you to finish that report, but what I'm really asking for under my deeper need is a sense of security because I'm worried about my job. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's a sense that you go, this is why this person might be behaving like this, is they're anxious because they're feeling a lack of security, that mm-hmm. may allow you to present with more compassion to them, perhaps. Compassion. 
so important to be to be, really be mindful of uh, what what the other might be experiencing, what's what's really right. going on in their world. So uh, have we have we covered the the full range of the the essential questions? Because I have some well, other questions about them, but I want to make sure we've got them all out. Yes, we've got two other questions that are, that are part of the mix. So the the question six and the question or question five and question six. So we'll do those really quickly. Question five is the lazy question, <laughs> and you, you, we talked about be lazy before. Yes, and I was very intrigued because I am. But go ahead. Yes. <laughs> and I salute you for it. Um, one of the patterns we're trying to break mm-hmm. is people jumping in to offer advice, offer solutions, fix it, solve it, rescue people around it. Because what people who have this pattern of being a rescuer, kind of a, we talk about this model called the drama triangle in the book, is they're like, okay, we're in a conversation. I think I know what you need. I'm going to give it for you. I'm uh, going to do it. I'm going to fix it for you. I see. And again, we're trying to slow that down. Okay. And so that question how can I help or what do you want from me? The lazy question doesn't sound like it's a lazy question, but what it's doing is it's stopping you rushing into the assumption that you know what they want and start deliver it to them. Oh, so how can I help is the lazy question. Exactly. How can I help is a lazy question. That's ironic. It is because because you're asking for like a task, right? Except you're not exactly assuming that you've got the answer for them and taking that on. Or am I missing something? Here's what you're asking for. You're asking for clarity about what they want. (laughs) Because remember we talked Mm -hmm. about adult-to-adult relationship. Ask for what you want, knowing the answer may be no. Just because they ask for what they want doesn't mean you have to do it. doesn't mean you have to take on Mm -hmm. the task. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing is you're creating a little clarity here about what actually is what's being requested of you or of others. Mm -hmm. And then you get a choice to act on that. Yep, I'm going to do that. Nope can't do that that's ridiculous can't do this but i could do that instead you know there are options in front of you so that's the lazy question which is slow down the rush to action by getting clear on what the actual need actually is okay and and the last the last one the strategic question is simply this what are you going to say no to so the thing you're saying yes to is a real yes you know, what are you hmm. going to say? Or you can flip that around. What are you going to say yes to so that the no has meaning? Hmm. Because we are in our organizational life, in our lives, as you talked about this earlier, we are hands up all those people who don't feel overwhelmed. Nobody's hands goes up, right? Because right. we're all feeling stressed and taxed and pushed this way and that way. And the foundation to managing that sense of overwhelm is getting better at saying no. So we're talking about the final question, which is the strategy question, which is what are you going to say no to Mm -hmm. so the thing you're saying yes to feels true? Because lots of us are good at the fake yes. You know, we go, my default is to say yes. I'm just going to add it to my already overwhelming life. And it's like pouring water into a full glass. Well, you know, you're also just, expected in many settings, in many business settings, yes, we can do that. Right. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. When, That's of course, right. you you can't possibly mean yes, uh, even right. though you're compelled to say it because you want to be seen as a person of action, a person who can exactly. commit quickly and make decisive moves to do things. And and you're like, and you're also trying to be a good corporate citizen, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, I want to be helpful. I want to be a team player, and all of that. So, what about all those fake yeses? How do we get rid yeah. of them? Well, here's how I tend to think of it, which is because 
that that equation, what are you going to say no to, so that your yes is, is true and real and stronger, mm-hmm. is powerful. But to your point, in many organizations and in many parts of life, you, sometimes you just can't say a blunt no. So one way of thinking about a solution to this is, it's not about a no, it's about slowing down the yes. <laughs> and this is what hmm. I don't mean by going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't work. I mean... Can you just slow down the rush to saying yes? And actually, the solution to that, better questions. Of so course. You know things like this. So, Stu, I love that you've asked me to do this. So, just let me check in. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you ask me? Was there something particularly that I can do that, that you're doing this? And mm-hmm. when you say it's important, why did is you it ask me? Or equally mm-hmm. important, or is some bits more or less important? Mm-hmm. And you know, did you ask Patricia? Because Patricia's fantastic at this sort of stuff. And I'm wondering if you asked her first or where things are with that. And of course, is there anything you want me to stop doing so I can start doing that? Mm-hmm. And here's what happens when you ask questions like that I think there's probably maybe three or four outcomes. One is they say, look, could you stop with your annoying questions? This was an order. Just That's what I was thinking, Michael. Yeah, so that, that happens. <laughs> um, stop asking me these questions. Just do it, damn it. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you're like, okay, so that's the deal. Uh-huh. Sometimes they go, actually, these are good questions, mm-hmm. and I don't have answers for them yet, but I'll come back to you. Mm-hmm. And that's at the, at the minimum, that gives you some breathing space, and sometimes they never come back. Thirdly, they actually have good answers to the questions which means that this is a thoughtful request and it means that you're probably going to say yes to it because they know why they're asking you. But honestly, Stu, sometimes they go, you know what, I was asking you because you have a pulse and you, you were there in front of me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go, and you're, honestly, you're too, much, you're too hard. I'm going to go and find somebody who says yes more quickly and more easily. <laughs> and what happens to you is you start building a reputation for being strategic. And this is the connecting back hmm. to why we called it the strategic question. Because ah. strategy in the end okay. boils down to what do you are say you no able to? to say no to the stuff you kind of want to say yes to. Mm-hmm. So, so, you, so your reputation grows as someone who is not going to take on everything. Is right. that it? That's right. Yeah. And, and because if you're, particularly in the context of organizational life, as you rise through the ranks, you want to be known as a thinker and somebody who is deliberate in what you say yes to, not somebody who just gets a whole lot of mm-hmm. stuff done. All right, but someone who's inquiring, yeah, curious, exactly. trying to discern the wheat from the chaff or to cut it, right, to, to be you clear about what, what matters most. So wh- what, what advice do you have for people, uh, the folks who are listening, about how to begin to incorporate these uh, approaches to... Uh, to interacting with people, I, I'm, I'm loath yeah. to use the word coaching because it's not really. It's just uh, it's yeah. just being being engaged and curious and learning, right? You got it. And and we use that language. We say you know, we're trying to make people just be the people they are, but being more coach like, which is this coach like. Okay. So how do, so, where do you start? I th- the 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 secret for me is you start somewhere and you start small. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you don't want to go wow, these are amazing, these seven questions. I'm going to try and ask all these questions all the time with everybody. Exactly. That's a sure road to misery. Bound to fail, yes. Bound to fail. So, you know, you've heard me talk about these questions. Uh, you can Google them, Google the coaching habit, and you'll find the seven questions. And then you go, which of these questions might serve me best? Mm-hmm. 
And then what I'd encourage people to do is say, okay, let me build my first habit around one of these, these questions. Hmm. Now, at thecoachinghabit.com, you can download the first two or three chapters of the book, and the first chapter is about building habits, so you can just grab that chapter if you'd like it. And we talk about the new habit formula in this. So this is me taking the work of Duhigg and Fogg and a bunch of other people and going, here's a simple formula to build a new habit. And the formula is this. It's got three parts to it. Part one, when this happens. So this is when you're describing the moment, the trigger, the situation where you want to shift things to be different in the future, mm -hmm. when this happens. Part two is the old habit that you're looking to shift. So it simply is instead of. And that's when you write out the old way of behaving, which might be in this case, you know, giving somebody advice or telling them what to do. And then the third piece is when you write out the new habit. And the, the twist is, write out a new habit that you can do in 60 seconds or less. Hmm. If you're interested in that, you're, the, the person to look up is BJ Fogg, F-O-double-G, mm -hmm. and find out why he recommends that you should build a habit. Any habit you build should take less than a minute to complete. Hmm. So it sounds like this, Stu. It's like, okay, I, lo I love the... I love the what's, the what's on your mind question, the very first one that we talked about. So it could sound like this. When I have my one-to-one -one meeting with Stu on Monday, uh, so that's the context, part one, mm -hmm. instead of saying, Stu, here's our usual agenda, let's just go through it, mm -hmm. I will say, Stu, I know you've got a lot on your plate at the moment, so let's start somewhere that matters. What's on your mind? And you're like, great, I've got a specific moment, I've mm -hmm. got a specific person, I've got a specific mm -hmm. question, I've got a habit that I'll either know whether I've done it or not, and then do it until you're like, okay, I've got this in my bones, what's the next question, what's the next situation that I might build a habit with? So mm -hmm. it's like, build it slowly, but build it deliberately, build it daily, and that's the best place to start. And and how do you build up from there in the... 30 seconds, what would you suggest to once you've, once you've gotten yeah. a little grip, a little traction, you see yeah. the benefit, you want to grow, grow it. Where do you go from there? You know, I think, uh, for me, this is one of those things where it's like a dojo when you're learning a martial art, where you go back and you keep learning the mm -hmm. basics and you just become more nuanced and refined and subtle and elegant in the way that you do that. Yeah. Uh, what I would encourage people to do early on is to kind of lean into that and what else question because that's the question that elevates every other question. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what your first question is, almost certainly you should be building a habit to say after they give me the first answer, instead of starting to give them advice, I will ask, great, what else? <laughs> and great, what else? And that's going to just really take you up to the next level of being able to stay curious and to deepen the inquiry by using and what else. And what else? Well, that's a fitting note for us to conclude, I would suggest. Michael, thank you so much for being my guest tonight. How can listeners find out more about your wonderful book and the work you do at Box of Crayons? Thank you. Uh, look, if you're interested in the programs that we run with for organizations, boxofcrayons.com is the website. If you're interested in the book, you can, like, you can get it on Amazon and all the bookstores, but you could go to thecoachinghabit.com. And like I say, there's a ton of free stuff people can download and stuff to listen to, so you're welcome to go and pillage that site as much as you'd like. Wonderful. Michael Bungay, Stanier, thank you very much for joining us on Work and Life. 
been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me, Stu. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Bungay-Stanier and that you got some new ideas about how you can be a better coach and help other people to become more aware of what matters most to them and to pursue what matters most to them by asking better questions, listening more, staying curious just a little bit longer. Such a useful, simple, profoundly important way to approach key relationships at work and in other parts of your life. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. Take one of those questions that Michael describes, any one of them, and use it in a conversation or maybe two or three conversations, maybe once with a person at work and again with someone in your family or with a friend. What do you discover about the value of such an inquiry in helping you to become more capable of helping others? How does it feel? What's the impact? I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter, I'm at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.